Good morning, everyone. My name is Raya. Uh, I serve in the children's ministry. Um, so please turn your Bibles uh, with me to Ruth chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, um, there's one at the back table over there. It's our gift to you. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Marlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had another husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law mother goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you will die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty, the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Hey, good morning again, everyone. Uh, if you are new, if you're visiting, uh, my name is RJ. I'm the associate pastor here in Tungabi Baptist. And a big welcome to you again. Uh, I'll be preaching. I'll be sharing the word of God. Uh, but before I do... Uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we 
ask that today's sermon is not just a, an intellectual exercise for us, but, but your words, Lord, will penetrate deep into our hearts, that it will bring conviction, but also encouragement. So, Lord, we pray that you will help us to be renewed and be transformed, to be more and more like your son. Amen. <clears throat> now, in my opinion, uh, the two best, two best romantic movies of all time, and this will be disputable, I guess, are one, Sleepless in Seattle, and two, The Notebook. Here's why. Let me, let me justify this. Uh, in the opening scene of, the, of Sleepless in Seattle, Sam, played by Tom Hanks, was asked to describe his wife. And he said this. He was on the phone. He said, it was a million tiny little things that when you added them all up, they meant we were supposed to be together. And I knew it. I knew it the first time I touched her. It was like coming home only to no home I'd ever known. I was just taking her hand to help her out of a car, and I knew it. It was like magic. In the movie The Notebook, when Noah, uh, played by Ryan Gosling, and, and Ali were forced to separate, they were separated by her family, Noah wrote a letter which contained this quote. He said, the reason it hurts so much to separate is because our souls are connected. Maybe they always have been and will be. Maybe we'll, we'll live a thousand lives before this one, and each of them we've found each other. And maybe each time we've been forced apart for the same reasons. That means that this goodbye is both a goodbye for the past 10,000 years and a prelude to what will come. See, a good love story is not simply about the love at first sight or the unexpected chance encounter, but it's about the, the belief in destiny, the notion that, that you're meant to be together and the universe somehow is conspiring to bring you together, and that's what makes a good love story. That it hints the idea that the universe is making sure that somehow you will still end up together, no matter what. Destiny, fate, that it's meant to be. Now, often we say that the book of Ruth is a good love story because, yes, there's love at first sight when Ruth was gleaning in the field. There's that risky encounter uh, in chapter 3 uh, on the, at the threshing floor and Ruth uncovering Boaz's feet, whatever that means. And I don't know if that's really romantic. Or Boaz patiently waiting to see if he's allowed to marry Ruth. I mean, that's all exciting. It's all entertaining. But what really makes the book of Ruth a good love story is that you can't help to see that, that everything somehow is happening for a reason. The idea of destiny, that even the problems that they are facing, it's not just coincidence, that there is, there is a plan somehow behind it all. But the love story is, is beyond the, the mother and daughter or husband and wife, but it is a love story between God and his people between God and mankind, between creation and creator. And this is why the story of Ruth is not just for us to be entertained, but it is helping us to believe. Not believe in romantic love stories, but believe that God loves us. So today we're going to look at the two main characters in the story, especially in chapter 1. And then we're going to look at the silence of God, the silence of God in the story that will really help us believe in this destiny, so to say. That will help us believe in the love of God. 
So here are the three points that I wanted to, sh to share to you. The two main characters, and we're going to look at the emptiness of Naomi. And secondly, we're going to look at the character of Ruth. And even in the silence of God, we're going to look at the bigger plan of God behind it all. All right? So Naomi, Ruth, and God. Let's start. So firstly, look, let's look at Naomi. And let, let me set the context of the story here. There's, there's a lot going on, but we're just going to explore some main ones. Now, the story begins with a famine in the land, verse 1. There's a shortage of food. Uh, side note, uh, it's funny enough, the place that they're coming from is Bethlehem, uh, which means literally the, the house of bread. But there's no food. So we're told a husband decided to migrate, to move out of the famine. He made the hard and logical decision, I guess, to move the family to a better country. They became immigrants. But it also mentions that this is happening when the judges rule, which means it is during the time where there's repetitive rebellion and disobedience of God's people, the Israelites. So we can read this in the book of Judges where, where there's a cycle of rebellion. And every time they rebel, God stops providing for them and he stops protecting them. And so he allows the enemy to take over the land. And so what the Israelites do is that they, they cry out to God for help. And so God responds by saving, by saving them and sending someone. So that's why the book of Judges is just really a repetition of rebellion, repentance, redemption. And that's why we have people like Samson, Gideon, Deborah. They're the judges. They're the leaders, so to say, that God is sending. But this guy, verse 2, his name is Elimelech. Eli means God. Melech means king. So really he's saying that God is my king. But instead of turning to God as his king, when he faces hardship in the land, he left the promised land and he went to enemy territory. He went to Moab. And here's what the relationship between the Israelites and the Moabites. In Judges chapter 3, we read this. It says, because the Israelites did evil in the Lord, uh, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Eglon came and attacked Israelites, uh, Israel, and they took possessions of the city of Palms and were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. So the Moabites are the enemies. And imagine their hatred for each other. But here's a guy, Elimelech, decided to go to Moab. And just in your Bible, notice the progression. Verse 1, it says that they were just there wanting to live for a while in the country of Moab. But verse 2, they went to Moab and they lived there. But verse 4, after, after they have lived there for about 10 years, Elimelech probably thought that, well, you know, I'm going to take my family to this land. Yes, it's enemy land, but we're just going to be there for a while, while the famine kind of ends. But I guess they got comfortable. They started to enjoy what the country has to offer, and they've decided to settle. But immediately we're told that the grass wasn't greener on the other side. Verse 3, right away, the husband, Elimelech, suddenly dies. Now, we're not told how nor why. He just did. But things got from went from bad to worse because verse 5, the two sons, Malon and Kilion, also died. Again, no explanation. We don't know, we don't even know how far along in between all this is happening. So just in five verses, we are confronted right away with the, with the worst situation for a wife and a mother. See, at the start, you'll think that Elimelech is the main person of the story, 
But the story quickly puts the focus on Naomi, the widowed wife and mother. And see, in ancient Near East, this is the worst situation for a woman. Let me explain. I think we've kind of spoken about this when we were doing Exodus. But see, today, if I ask you, what is, what, what is your best capital? Like, when, when you, what do you need today to flourish in our society? Right? What's your best capital? Now, you might say, well, you need money. Money is great capital. If you have money, you have something to invest. You have something to, to work with. The more money you have, the, more, uh, the better are your chances and the better are your choices in life. Or you might say, no, 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 you need education. Education gives you opportunities. Education gives you a good job, which will get you a good career, will get you a lot of money, and it gives you a good status. Education is a good capital. So today, it's money, it's education. It can be your influence. Uh, if you love TikTok, then you can be an influencer. It can be your good looks. It can be your skills and so on, right? In those days, it's not even money because money can get stolen very quickly. It's not even your home nor your land because invaders always comes in. In those days, it was your family. Remember, it's, it's, a, it's a tribal society. So in their culture, having a big family is your capital. So especially if you're a woman in ancient times, this is why barrenness is seen as a curse. The more children you have, the more workers you have, and the more protection you can have, and the more connections you can make with other tribes because your children start to intermarry into other tribes. That's why continuing the family line is very important for them. Right? That's the context. Now look at Naomi's situation now. Her husband is dead. Her sons are dead. She has no grandchildren. She's older. It means, she, it means that she doesn't have any prospect of, of creating a new family. She can't remarry. She can't rebuild her family. She has no financial support. She lives in a foreign land, in enemy territory. She has no social standing. Naomi is not only grieving the death of her husband and two sons, but she is vulnerable because she is without protection. She is hopeless in this situation. That's why verse 21, look at it. She describes herself to others. I said, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. She's empty. She has nothing. She's a nobody, no worth, no significance, no future, no hope. And when your life is like Naomi's, it's normal to make the statement that she did in verse 21. Sorry, verse 13. She said, the Lord is against me. Maybe she's thinking that God is punishing her over something. Maybe she's asking the more important or more modern question that we normally have, that if God is so kind, if he's so loving, then why would he allow such evil and suffering happen to me? Verse 20, she said, the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Verse 21, the Lord has afflicted me. Notice that Naomi is forming her theology, her understanding of who God is on her circumstance. It's, again, it's the same question people are asking today. If God is so good, then how can he allow such evil? If God is so in control, then why doesn't he stop terrorism or tsunamis or cancer? See, we, we normally formulate our theology on what we can see and what we can experience. We create this picture of God depending on what we see and experience in this world. 
But this is why we're given the Bible. Because we're called to formulate our theology based on the very word of God. We don't create a God in our own understanding. No, we know him by his revelation here in his word. See, Elimelech, he can see famine. He can see disaster and problems. And instead of turning to God's promise and trusting that they are in the promised land, the land of milk and honey, instead of turning back to God in repentance during the time of Judges, he moved to a pagan land. I think it's, I think it's very rela relatable for us again today because we can be happy, chirpy Christians, singing praises here on a Sunday, playing Christian songs in our car, gladly serving in ministry, thinking that our faith is strong, but as soon as we face problems, maybe it's a bad biopsy report, Maybe finding out that we're getting redundant. Maybe getting rejected by someone that we love. We suddenly question the goodness of God. We question the promises of God. Or we even question the existence of God. We ask, why? How can God do this to me? Simply because we cannot harmonize our perception of reality to the biblical truth. When confronted with the difficulty of life, like Naomi, we often question if God is really on our side. But can you see the honesty of the Bible? The Bible is showing us that we are not immune to suffering or tragedy or grief. Maybe this is why the author doesn't give us any reason why Elimelech and the sons died. They simply did because it's part of human life. And now here's Naomi left to face grief and trials. It's here because scripture doesn't hide from, the, from this reality, especially not for those who follow God. But look at Naomi's reaction. Because even though all this is happening in Naomi's life, look at verse 6. It says that when Naomi heard in Moab... That the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them back at home. She and her daughter-in-law prepared to return home from there. Meaning that when Naomi heard that God is providing, she planned to go back home. That even though she said that, that God is against her, that God is punishing her, somehow she still believes and hopes that God will also provide for her somehow. She doesn't change religion she doesn't, she couldn't, she doesn't even stay in Moab, especially after 10 years. I think this might be an indication of her true faith. That even though she is drained emotionally, she has this slight hope that God will at least provide her her daily bread. She returns home thinking that perhaps God will still bless her. That during her most desperate and most painful and most hopeless situation, she turns to God for hope. He, she tries to go home. And I think we'll, we'll, we'll see this throughout Naomi's life in, in the series. That somehow, that even though she feels defeated, that God is against her, she doesn't lose faith. And I think throughout the book, you'll notice that little by little, she somehow regains the faith through, the, through small things. And I, I do think that in most instance, instances, that this is how our faith grows or develops, that it's not just hearing one good evangelistic sermon and when we become a Christian or experiencing a, a big miracle, it's, it's us responding to the small hints and small evidences that God is giving along the way. 
that our faith really grows in our response to the small nudges that God is sending in our day-to-day, in our interaction with Him through His Word, through listening to what God is doing in our life and what God is doing in the world. See, Naomi hears what God is doing back home, and she responds by attending to that. All right, that's Naomi. Let's leave her alone for a little bit. Now, let's look at the character of Ruth. Now, Ruth, like Naomi, again, she just lost her husband, but we know that she's still young. She has the chance of remarrying, it says, that we know that, that her, we know her family is also still alive because Naomi says, well, go back to your family. She's a local, she's a Moabite, so it's easier for her. So really, she has all the hope and prospect to get her life back on track. She has a family to support her. She can get remarried again and have kids. And this is why Naomi tells her daughter-in-law, don't come with me, because if you do, you'll have no future with me. Go back home. But then Ruth responds with one of the most impressive statements I find and most impressive promises in the Bible. In verse 16, let me read. It says, that don't, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you, because where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. You know, this passage is sometimes read in weddings. But, you know, it's, it's between a mother-in-law and a daughter. But can you at least see why? Because every spouse would like to hear that from their partner. Total loyalty, full commitment, no reservation. I will never leave you. And really think about what she's leaving behind. Her land, her family, all that is familiar to her, her religion, her gods, her security. She's giving her future completely to this widow who is childless and a foreigner. In a way, she's committing her future to not being able to, to marry again and have children herself. That's what she's doing here. And again, in, in ancient Near East, they believe that if you are, if you're buried, um, where, sorry, where you are buried, it has a significance in your afterlife. So even, so even her afterlife, so to speak, she's committing it to Naomi. She's saying that I will be buried among you and your people under your God. That everything from this point forward is committed to you. See, the author says in verse 22 that Naomi returned from Moab accompanied not just by Ruth, but by Ruth the Moabite. If it wasn't already obvious, the author is really pointing out the tension that's about to happen. And this is what's, this is what's confronting about this. Because see, when Ruth is in Israel, and she's working, right? Ruth in Israel, she's trying to blend in with, with everybody else. But we're told repeatedly throughout the story that Boaz said this. He said, don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. Do you know why Boaz had to, to repeatedly say that? Why does he have to say that? I'll make sure the men won't touch you because Ruth is in such a big danger of violence here and possibly something else 
she's much more at risk in a way than Naomi because not only she has no future in Israel, she is in grave danger. So putting it in that context, see when, when she says, where you go, I will go, where you stay, I will stay, your people will be my people and your God, my God. Here's what she's saying. She's saying, I'm binding myself to you in a way that whatever happens to you will happen to me till death do us apart. So here's someone willing to leave everything behind, everything familiar, and put herself in a place where she will be hated and face extreme persecution. This is why it's one of the most amazing speeches in the Bible. But we ask, why, why is Ruth willing to go through this? Why can't she just, you know, leave her mother-in-law and just go back to her life? Well, some biblical scholars will say that it's, it's actually Ruth's faith. They point out that she's willing to put her faith in Yahweh, the Israelite God, that she's been converted here. Uh, I believe she is converted here at this point. But I don't think this is what the author is highlighting here. I think the main emphasis is not on Ruth's faith, but it's on her character. I think the text wants us to look at the type of love and commitment she has towards Naomi. See, throughout the text, throughout the, the story, her, her character is being highlighted. In chapter 3, verse 11, Boaz says this, All the people of my town know that you are a, wo a woman of noble character. Ruth became well known because she's a woman of character. Here's a woman, a Gentile, a Moabite, enemy of the Israelite. Yet, she's, she shows humility, and she shows love, and kindness, and courage, and gentleness, and commitment to her native enemy. And you will see later on, like as we go through the story uh, in the next few weeks, that what, what really caught the eye of Boaz is not her physical beauty, but it's her noble character. Ruth, because of her character, pledged herself to Naomi. Because of her character, she caught the eye of Boaz. Because of her character, Boaz takes her in, which therefore saves Naomi and her. And most of all, because of her character, she is able to continue the line of David. Her background is against her. She's a Moabite. And yet, because of her righteousness, she ends up saving Naomi and the line of David. And she contributed to the success of Israel. And she contributed to the line of the Messiah, of Jesus. Which means, here's a Moabite who contributed to your salvation. Which leads us to our last point, the plan of God. Now, it's very interesting. For the first time in, in the biblical narrative from the Old Testament, we don't, we don't hear God in the book of Ruth. We don't hear God explicitly acting in the story. I just noticed it this week that in the book of Ruth, we see God mentioned in the conversation, but you don't actually see or hear God doing anything. That starting from Genesis until Joshua, we see God clearly at work. He's, he's speaking to someone. He's sending his angels. He's displaying his power. He's, he's acting on judgment. He's sending flood. He's sending food from heaven. And so along the way, from Genesis to Joshua, we can clearly see the evidence of God at work. But all of a sudden, we have the book of Ruth. And we don't see him explicitly doing anything. There are no miracles there's no dreams, there's no visions, there's, there's even no words from God. He's not even speaking here. That, again, it's very interesting. All of a sudden, there's silence from God. 
And I really love this in a way because the book of Ruth, I feel like it's really for people like us who go about in our day-to-day life and we don't experience dramatic answers to our prayers. There's no miraculous events happening. All we have, we have nothing but the mundane and hard times. But see, the message of the book is that during the daily grind of our life, during, even during the painful times of our life, that God is still at work. He's still there. We don't see him clearly acting, but he's there. Just because he is silent, it doesn't mean that he's absent. He's still at work. He's working thousands of ways for his glory and our good, even though you don't see it. And so we must learn to see the signs of hope that he's working underneath the surface. See, when Naomi comes back, she says, she goes back home. She says, I'm empty. In her mind, she believes she has nothing. But remember, she walks back to Bethlehem with who? She's saying, I'm empty. But who she's with? She's with Ruth. This incredible treasure that God has put into her life, this woman who's full of love and courage is with her. Who's going to change her life? Who's going to change Boaz's life? And who's going to bring redemption in the line of the Messiah? She just walked into the village with Ruth, the Moabite. What does she say to her friends? I've come back with nothing. See, Naomi comes back home with her own plans, her own understanding, her own theology of what she thinks God should be doing in her life. And because God's plan is not her plan, she can't see the sign of hope that God has already put in her life. She couldn't see the wonderful plan that God has installed in her life. And maybe some of you are in the same place right now. You have an agenda and, and, and things that are, are not going your way. But because you're stuck with your own plan, maybe you're blinded by your pain. You can't see the incredible hope that God has put in your life right now. But see, the book is teaching us that it is the mundane things, that God uses the ordinary things in our life, that God loves to work during the hard times where you can't see. That he sends the king through a manger, not through a throne. Maybe you're feeling like Naomi. You're feeling empty and you're asking, where is God right now in my pain? Why is this all happening to me right now? And you can't see any hope. You can't, you can't see a way out of your situation. And the pain is blinding you from God's presence. But do you see what the book is telling you? That there might be a Ruth in your life right now that God has sent. It doesn't look like it's hope because, again, look at Ruth. It looks more like a burden. She's coming home with a Moabite. But you need to have faith that God will use even our tragedy to bring about triumph. They might ask, well, how can you be sure? Or here's why. And this is the overall message of the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is not about be like Ruth. It's not about being a committed friend or good daughter-in-law. Right? We should be Ruth to others because we don't know what kind of blessing we might bring to them. But the book is really pointing us to a better Ruth. See, look, Ruth left her father's house she left her own country. She came down. She became an outsider. She became a suffering servant. She became completely vulnerable. She became someone who was despised as an enemy. She risked it all out of her love and her commitment. Now, does that remind you of anybody else? 
that Jesus Christ left his father's house, left his homeland. Even though he knows what, what it will cost him, he pledged himself to us. He took on our poverty. He took on our shame. And on the cross, he was emptied of his glory because he took on our sins. That on the cross, there was no Boaz to save him. Why? So that through his poverty, we can become rich. Through his death, we can receive life. Through his righteousness, we can receive forgiveness of our sins. Ruth is not just another wonderful story to be like Ruth. It's actually reminding us that we are the Naomi in the story. We are outside of the promised land. We are empty. And for us to get back in, we need a Ruth to be our hope. And that hope is our Lord Jesus Christ. That out of his love, out of his love, he came with us. That's the better love story that we need to hear. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible love. That out of your love, you gave up your one and only son. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love that it drove you to the cross so that our sins can be repaid. And Lord, we ask that you will continue to accompany us. Lord, we ask that you will continue to speak in our hearts that even though often we don't hear you around, we don't see you working, help us to have that faith that we can trust you no matter what, that even in your silence, you are not absent. This we pray in your name. Amen.